As we bring our attention to God's word today, the reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep from me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Yes. Well, good morning. So I guess I'll give my update first. Sound good? All right. Well, I'll make a distinction. It's actually, it's Wilmington, North Carolina, not Wilmington, Delaware. You didn't say Delaware. You didn't say anywhere. But I think we're closer to Wilmington, Delaware, perhaps, here. So it's actually Wilmington, North Carolina. There, is, there are two Wilmingtons. Um, man, my southern accent. Do I have a southern accent? I'm from, I'm not from, I'm from Rhode Island. And... <laughs> I don't have a Rhode Island accent either, so. Um, well, I don't, I was trying to remember when I was here last, and I should have looked it up, but the last couple of years are a blur. But um, since, since we were here last, my family and I, um, feels like an eternity, but um, at that time, Gray City Church uh, existed only in the mind and heart of God, and in our mind and hearts as a vision. And... So it's amazing to think that whatever it was two years later, now this morning at 1045, there are people in Wilmington, North Carolina, hearing God's word being preached right now by Aaron Bean, my fellow pastor. He's preaching God's word out of Mark chapter five right now. And we're going through the book of Mark and through the preaching of God's word, through the gospel, people's lives are being changed. And so I'm, I'm, I'm amazed, I am, I'm freshly amazed this morning uh, that 
uh, filled with wonder that we get to do this. We get to serve and love people in Jesus' name in a city where people that don't know Jesus are getting to hear about him, many of them for the first time. So it's, it's super exciting. Uh, just a little bit about the body that is Grace City Church. Um, we have a, a small but solid core group, as Matthew kind of alluded to in his prayer, solid core group of about 12 to 13 adults and about 12 to 13 kids. We are about pretty even in the adult-to-child ratio. And then Sunday mornings are just a joy because, we, because we're a, a coastal town, vacation town, we get a lot of people on vacation that come by and worship with us on Sunday morning. So we have a lot of guests usually. Um, and we're always sad to hear that they're not from Wilmington when we, we say hello to them. Uh, especially like those that you're like, oh, this, look at this family coming in. And, oh, we're from Colorado. Okay, great. We'll see, see, you, see you in heaven. Come worship with us. It's wonderful. Um, but um, these, this core team of ours is amazing. Um, we couldn't do it without them. Uh, they are there faithfully every single week, setting up, breaking down. We're meeting in a, uh, an elementary school called Winter Park Elementary. Uh, it's one of the oldest, um, I guess, buildings and schools in the town, and it's right in the middle of town. So it's, been, it's, it's a really great spot. People are a lot of traffic. And uh, we get to meet in this old auditorium, and um, they come every week. They set everything up. They take everything down, and we get to go do it again the, week, the next week. And so uh, it's, it's amazing to watch them. We can't believe that we get to do this with them. I um, just wanted to mention a few of the guests that we've had uh, over the last couple of months just because I think it gives glory to God. Um, there's this one guy. His name's Brad. And Brad was riding by one day on his bicycle, and he doesn't have a car. And Ryan, which is the church planter that is now with us, uh, was helping set up. They were there with the trailer, and he stopped Brad, and, uh, or Brad was coming by and kind of looked, and, and Ryan and Brad got into a conversation. And Ryan said what we were doing, and he said, hey, why don't you, why don't you come worship with us today? Because the guy had said I hadn't been in a church in a while. And so Brad went home on his bicycle, got dressed, came back. And we got to meet Brad, and we've, we've been able to spend every Sunday with Brad since then. It's been about two months now. Uh, Brad was homeless for seven years. Wilmington, North Carolina has a huge homeless population. He was homeless for seven years. He now has a home, and he doesn't have much family, friends. And every time we do something as a church, he's, he's there. And Brad recently told me that a few months ago, I didn't have a family. He said, now I have a family. And, and Brad knows Christ. He came in knowing Christ. He, he was already a believer, but we're seeing Brad grow in his relationship with the Lord. Um, there's this another lady. Her name's Emily. Emily is a young mother, has a child already. She's pregnant with another child. She's married. Emily doesn't know Christ. She doesn't claim to know Christ. But every time we have an event, she's there. And she comes on a lot of Sunday mornings. And uh, she's really wrestling with the gospel. And uh, she said something similar, too. She said, I actually feel more at home with you than I do with my own friends. And so that, that's, what, that's what Jesus does. He brings people together. And the light that is Jesus shines on those who are in darkness, and they want to be a part of that. And so Emily, we've been able to be with her, and I, and I, could, I could name five or six other people that this has happened with and that are a part of us. Uh, and and uh, we are a messy group we're a church plant, obviously, but we're all messy. 
the gospel says we're messy. And what's appealing is not our having it together. What's appealing is Jesus and what he's done. That, that, that's what draws people. And it's the same for this church. That's what draws people. And it's exciting week after week after week because we get to see that happen week after week after week. Um, we can't say we're growing fast by human standards. And I'm so grateful for your reminder and your prayer. We're not growing fast by human standards, but when we see Jesus doing what he's doing, uh, we, that makes us a success. And that gives us great joy. And it makes us want to come back and keep doing it week after week after week. So um, anyway, that's just a little bit about the church plant. I could talk so much more, but um, I'm going to preach. And I'm not going to preach on church planting. So that, that actually gives me joy, too, because I don't always want to be known as the, the guy who preaches about church planting. So you have your Bibles open, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm so glad you read it. I didn't know you guys were going to do that. So amazing. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, this sermon is a, it's really just where I am in my own life, and so hopefully the Lord will use it as an encouragement for those of you that are in a similar season. Um, perhaps one of my greatest, or my most favorite um, genre of movie is the war film. And that's not necessarily because I enjoy war, War is a terrible thing. But I think it's because um, as a child, my dad is like this big World War II history buff. And so as a child, I would would come into the living room and he would have the History Channel on. And and that was back when the History Channel actually showed history. Uh, And and anybody that knows I'm talking about, you remember those old, characteristically fuzzy black and white documentaries of planes shooting and, and, you know, just that was always on TV. And so I remember as a kid being super bored by that and just wishing he would watch something else. But oftentimes I sat there and watched it. And, and actually over time, I actually started to kind of enjoy documentary. I enjoyed the the storyline of what was, whatever was happening. And when I got old enough, I can remember the first time getting to sit down I think I was, I, I was a, te- I hope I was a teenager watching this movie, but I was a teenager and we watched the movie Patton. Patton is arguably one of the best uh, war films ever. I could argue with you on that. I think it won something like seven Academy Awards. Uh, George C. Scott's greatest role for sure, hands down, in my opinion. Um, and if anybody that's seen the movie, can I, can I have a show of hands? Anybody that's actually seen? Okay. All right, good. A, a large bulk of us could. Um, if you watch the movie, there's debates as to how accurately Scott was able to depict the real-life Patton. But in the movie, remember, he spent, he, he's, a lot of his quotes were quotes from old, ancient military heroes. He referred to old battles uh, of the past. And, and in that movie, um, you know, Patton was this really well-versed in military history, this guy, really, really well-versed. But at the end of the movie, uh, after Patton was relieved from the Third, third Army... Um, he's walking off into the distance as the movie fades out, and he's walking his little bull terrier, and you hear a voiceover of him speaking. And he's referring back to the ancient Roman generals who would come home after a victory, and they would come and have a, a great parade, a victory procession. And that Roman general would ride through the streets celebrating. 
And this is what Patton says at the end of the movie. He says, these are the last words of the movie. The conqueror rode in triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. Now, historical records show that there is a lot of truth to this statement. Roman generals would indeed station a slave or someone next to them with their crown, and they would be whispering in his ear, but the actual words written on stuff they've dug up and artifacts and things were in Latin, hominem te memento, remember that you are a man. Remember that you are a man. See, the ancient Romans understood something that our culture often forgets today. That hubris, arrogant pride, is dangerous. The, the, greatest, the greatest victories are a cause for the, the greatest pride, but it's only a matter of time before pride will bring us low again. So that slave was ordered to stand there to remind that general of his mortality. Now, in this passage that you heard read today, the Apostle Paul recounts an experience that he had many years ago that had the potential to produce this hubris, this arrogant pride in him. And so because of the dangers that pride posed for the Apostle Paul, God sent a thorn, a messenger, if you will, of Satan to remind Paul of his mortality. Paul, hominem te memento, you are just a man. So today, all of us sitting here and me standing here, our problem is no different than those generals and of the apostle Paul. None of us in this room are exempt from the dangers of spiritual pride. And so this text is a word to us that have been dealing with a thorn a messenger that reminds us of our own mortality. And I believe that through this text, God wants to show all of us that the, the thorns that remind us of our weakness are actually sent by God to reveal Jesus as our source of strength. And so as we unfold this paradox that weakness is a gift from God, I, my prayer has been for you and it's been for me that God would open up our eyes so that we would see his glory in this and give us greater joy and hopefully usefulness for him and for his gospel as we receive what he has for us. So let me just spend just a minute or two kind of introducing us to where we are in this letter. Um, this passage is considered by some to be the climax of Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, and it's a very familiar text, as you know, um, really familiar. We love quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, but there's a context to it, and you may know that the Corinthian church was one of the hardest churches for Paul to care for. This is a church that you could say wore their sins on their sleeve. And Paul was constantly playing cleanup with this church. 
Uh, Paul planted this church somewhere in, around 50 AD. And at the writing of this letter, it was about six years later uh, that he was writing this letter to the church. And there's a number of reasons Paul wrote this particular letter. But his biggest concern is a group of men, false teachers, who Paul calls, quotes, super apostles in chapter 11 that have infiltrated the church. And these men are preaching a gospel, a different gospel than what Paul is preaching. These men are big on appearances. They're big on a big show of their spiritual, um, what, success maybe. And they're very proud, they're very prideful. And so they love to boast about their own godliness. And these are the guys that have come in to the church. And so Paul is, at the same time, they're they're heavily criticizing Paul and his ministry. And they're saying, look at this weak man. You sure you want to follow such a, a weak man? And so a lot of people in the Corinthian church have begun to eye Paul with suspicion. They begin to look at Paul and they've begun to question his calling. And so Paul writes this letter in defense of his ministry, not because he's concerned about himself so much, but because he's concerned to uphold the integrity of the gospel message among this people. And so just to kind of make this a little easier to digest, let's, let's study this, sec- this passage under three headings. The first is Paul's revelation, verses 1 through 6. The second is Paul's affliction, verses 7 through 8. And the third is Paul's conclusion, verses 9 through 10. So let's look at the first, Paul's revelation. Okay, so again, Paul's writing because he's concerned about these super apostles who are using their spiritual experiences as a platform for their own self-exaltation. Their experiences, they say, are proof of their godliness, proof of their capability to lead the church. And so Paul writes in this section, comes along and says, I want you, dear Corinthians, to know how foolish it is to use your spiritual experiences as an occasion for boasting and especially to point to them as proof of your calling. And so to do so, Paul plays their game by doing a little boasting himself of a a vision or a revelation that he received many years ago, though he says it's completely silly to do so. He says there's nothing to be gained by him or by them because it only takes their eyes off of Jesus and on to man. But remember, he wants to convict, convict, convict them and convince them of their own shallowness And alert them of the danger of these megalomaniacs. And so he indulges them a little bit. So let's look. Verses 2 to 4. I want you to feel the hesitancy of Paul here. You you can see his hesitancy, can't you? He's he's talking about himself in the third person. All right? Verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul is recounting something that happened 14 
years ago, before, long before the Corinthian church was ever planted, which until now has been quietly hidden as a secret in Paul's own memories. Paul was taken up into paradise. At least he had a vision of paradise. Of the third heaven. The abode of God. And while he was there, he he heard things and he saw things that were only for him to hear and to see. Another reason why, of course, he's so hesitant in sharing about his experiences. So, So if Paul is going to go on boasting at all, He says in verse 5, it's going to be about that guy who 14 years ago enjoyed this experience. But again, he wants to show us the foolishness of boasting. So in verses 5 to 6, he quickly says, I don't want you Corinthians to know me by my experiences though. I don't want you to know me by my strength, but by my weakness. Friends, until again, until now he's not mentioned this to anyone. He's never sat them all around the campfire in Corinth and said, let me tell you about what happened to me 14 years ago. No, Paul knew nothing among this church, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel has, is the only thing with the power to change and save them, not his experiences, not his boastfulness, not his experiences. Nothing can save them except Jesus and the gospel. And so instead, in chapter 11, Paul actually recounts how terrible some of his experiences actually were. And I'll leave you to read those verses 24 through 29 in chapter 11. In short, Paul's ministry has been marked by weakness. This is the only platform where Christ can be made much of. It's the only platform from which Christ will be made big enough and we will be small enough. Paul's posture toward great great experiences, great spiritual experiences, is instructive for us. Friends, it's the natural propensity of the human heart to lift ourselves up and exalt ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's in every one of us. And our culture acts like a a Petri dish for self-elevation. Our culture today is directly opposed to the concept of the weak Christian. Completely opposite. There are platforms of all kinds available to us that are beckoning us to come and make much of ourselves. I won't ask for a show of hands But every person in here who uses social media knows what I'm talking about. Every person has the temptation to exalt themselves. Even the most humble among us are thrilled when people like us. When people we don't know think we are great. And so we're tempted, aren't we, to take those filtered, blemish-free selfies And post them with an inspirational quote. Or to type these really well thought out words of wisdom and wit. And show everybody how smart and funny we really are. And from the second we put our phone down, we can't wait to pull that thing up again because we want to see if anybody liked it. 
if anybody shared it, if anybody retweeted it, when all the while what we're doing unwittingly is inflating and puffing up our own egos and boosting our self-esteem and, and we're covering up our weakness, our true weakness. It's a far cry from the apostle who we call the great apostle who hesitated, who hesitates to talk about himself at the risk that people will think more of him than what they saw in him. Friends, it's no wonder. It's no wonder a large piece of American Christian evangelical churches have such a hard time reaching people who are broken. We have an incredibly hard time, and and I'm speaking to myself. How can we make much of Jesus when we spend so much time trying to make much of ourselves? How can we relate with a person who's bound by sin and addiction when our own lives look perfect and we try to make sure they look perfect? Just a couple of weeks ago, Aaron and I were having a staff meeting at Starbucks where we often have our staff meeting. And there was this woman sitting nearby and and this woman, I've seen her there before. By appearances, she looks like she's had a tough life. And she wears baggy, ripped clothing and she's got... She just looks like she's had a rough life. And so we're sitting there, and the evangelist that Aaron is said hello and introduced himself. And as soon as he did that, we no more staff meeting because now we're talking to this woman for the rest of the afternoon. And this woman, the entire time we're sitting there, she, she said two or three times to us, I can't believe you're talking to me because she knew who we were. I can't believe you're talking to me. And she shared about how bad of an experience she had in some churches that she tried to go find God in and how people looked at her differently and kind of cast her aside, an outcast. And so she said again, I can't believe you're talking to me. And finally I asked her, why are you so surprised that we're talking to you? And she said, because you're pastors, because you're Christians. Sharing the experiences that she had She was surprised that a Christian would talk to her. She assumed, I think, that because we're so good at appearing strong, that we would have nothing to say to her. Alistair Begg, preaching to a group of college students on this very text, says it more bluntly. The pressure is on us to constantly appear very strong and have everything under control. What Paul is saying here about weakness is the very antithesis of 21st century evangelicalism and it is one of the reasons we have so little to say to a suffering community. To be met head on by this great triumphalistic mass of humanity walking out of the average evangelical church carrying fat Bibles with fat smug faces We offer no prospect for those who know themselves to be the least and the last and the left out. And they're saying there's no real point in me approaching these individuals because clearly they know nothing of what I know. Friends, if our our posture, the way we carry ourselves as Christians makes us irrelevant to the world, friends, our gospel loses its power. Our gospel loses its power. 
I'm not here to knock social media. Social media is good, but if it or anything else becomes a platform for us for for boasting, we will have nothing to say to people like this woman that we met who know themselves to be the least and the last and the left out. Friends, the reality is, is we're weak people. We are weak people. We're needy people. And the gospel is evidence that we're weak and needy people. We need the gospel to save us. The same one that saved us is the same one that saves us today and shows us how incredibly unable we are to actually save ourselves. Now, Paul may have had an amazing experience and none of us may ever have an experience like Paul had, but this text makes us consider or should make us ask the question, what are our blind spots? Are there areas in our lives that we tend to to ignore Areas in our lives that patterns maybe that lend themselves to self-exaltation. What are the character qualities that we rely on or the skill sets that we have or the jobs that we have or the past experiences that we have that we're tempted to rely on to save us? Whatever they are, success at work, being a good parent, having a clean home, dressing nicely, wanting everyone to think well of us, whatever those are, Paul shows us here that those are areas that God wants to use as targets to humble us. That's what he goes on to, to talk about in verses 7 and 8. So the second point is Paul's affliction. Paul unquestionably switches to the first person in his story. And he shows God's greater purpose in giving him this experience that he had years ago. Now, opposite of what those false teachers were saying, because of the weakness of his flesh, Paul's experience became an opportunity for pride. He says this twice in verse 7. Apparently, after this revelation, Paul would, rightly so, think back on it and, and just ponder and meditate on this amazing thing that he saw and heard. But the problem is, Instead of it being a source of joy and comfort and humbling for him, it became a temptation arose in his heart. A temptation arose to become conceited. So the sin in his flesh mixed with all of his experiences and all of his accolades and all the things that he's done in ministry began to create this potion in his heart that had the power to puff his mind up. And so because of the propensity in his heart, to become elated, he says in verse 7b, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now, there's, there's no end to scholarly speculation as to what that thorn actually was. I am amazed at some of the things that I have seen people write about that particular thorn. But the reality is, Paul doesn't really tell us what it was. It's like he doesn't tell us about his revelations. He doesn't tell us what this actual thorn was, except for what's written here. See, a thorn, the word that Paul uses, is a pointed thing, a stake, something that causes great pain. And so because it's in his flesh, it could mean something that was afflicting his body, or at least it had physical side effects in his body. Maybe high blood pressure, I don't know. And since he calls it a messenger of Satan, it's very likely that it's something that tormented his mind because it's a messenger 
whisper to his thoughts. Torment is a good word because the word literally means harass, beat, slap around, annoy. And that word harass, by the way, is in the present tense, which means it, 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 it was persistent, happened over and over again. It's so persistent, in fact, Paul can recall three separate occasions where he got on his knees and he begged God to please take this thing away from me. Clearly, this was a, an imposition. It was an obstacle to his life and to his ministry. He begged God, please remove this. Whatever the thorn was, we don't know. But it's important to see something. This thorn was given to Paul by God himself. Even though Satan's messenger is the delivery boy. Of course, we know this is God because it's God with whom Paul pleads to take away this thorn. He knows God's running the show, so please take this thing away. But also, Paul knows Scripture. And the storyline of Scripture shows us that Satan is a being under God's authority. And, and God gives Satan a measure of control over the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, like he says in Ephesians 6. But it's a limited control. Satan is on a, a leash. It is God who ordains all events, Isaiah said in Isaiah 46. Therefore, God must use the works of the devil that he gives a measure of authority forcing them to accomplish his purposes in his children. And all you need to do is read the story of Job to know the truth of that. God knows just what we need, friends. God knows just what our son, his sons and daughters need long before we ever can. He sees the sin, the stuff that's down in our hearts that would rise up if we're given the chance to exalt ourselves above measure and Friends, don't we know, did you know that if that was left unchecked and we were allowed to be and do what we had in our hearts, we would take God off of his throne if we could. We would sit in his place. God knows what we need. God knows just what kind of thorn Paul needed to show him how weak he really was. He knows the kinds of thorns that we need to expose our pride. You know, I think there's even a, a deeper gospel reason why God gave Paul, this great apostle, this thorn, this thorn in his flesh, one that would transform Paul's perspective utterly about his weakness. Michelle and I, when we moved to Wilmington, we lived in an apartment for a year, but we recently bought a home by the grace of God, bought a home, and we moved in in, in May. And one evening after uh, we had put the kids to bed, it was d getting dark out. It's kind of, you know, summertime, so it was late, light, late. And I saw some toys out in the yard, and I decided that I'd go clean up the toys in the yard. And I didn't give a thought to the fact that I was barefoot. And so <clears throat> I stepped off of my back deck that night onto the yard, and within about two seconds, my foot was in searing pain. And so I <laughs> quickly got off of the grass, and I ran back inside. Clearly, the yard, the yard was never maintained, ever. So I got back inside, and I sat hobbled to the closest chair, 
and I turned my foot over and I found five or six small black burrs or thorns in the bottom of my foot. And so I began to remove those thorns and after the the very last one was removed, I, I walked up the stairs to my bedroom, to bed, with every step reminding me of my run in with North Carolina burrweed or whatever it was that was infesting my lawn. And see, that's, that's the effect that Paul's thorn had on him. It forced him to sit. It forced him to stop in his tracks. You see, God graciously supplied Paul with this thorn, not only to expose his pride, but to show him how weak he was, to make him aware of his weakness. In many ways, Paul's like those Roman generals coming home from victory, at least with his success in ministry. And so this, even the great apostle, this man needed to be reminded over and over and over again by the person on the chariot next to him, hominem te memento, Paul. Remember that you are a man. Friends, every one of us, humble as we may be, has that same propensity. I'll say it again. This is the same sin that's been been imprisoning humankind since the very beginning. Each one of us, according to Romans 1, has a natural bent in our hearts to glorify ourselves before God. So in his kindness, in his kindness, God graciously gives thorns to his children. Let's examine ourselves. Let's think on our lives. What? What's beating us up today? What are the kinds of thorns in our lives that are harassing us, that are causing pain? Friends, are we constantly aware of our shortcomings? Are we constantly seeing that every time it seems like we're getting ahead, something stops us in our tracks and a voice whispers in our ear, failure, failure. We find ourselves saying again and again, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I fell into that same trap again. I can't believe I had another outburst of anger. I can't believe I clicked that many times and got to that website again. I can't believe there's this much junk in us. Or maybe we can't point to a specific sin, but we do feel anxious quite a lot. We feel anxious because we're constantly trying to organize our lives so that we don't feel pain. We're constantly trying to arrange our homes so that they seem comfortable, and they are comfortable, and it's quiet and calm, and we're ordering our children because they will not be out of order because we want to be comfortable. So we demand that they be what we want them to be, and then they don't. They can't. And we're frustrated and we're anxious because we realize that we can't actually save our kids. We can't actually change our spouse. We can't actually change our neighbor, our family. So we're frustrated. what's, What's the thorn? Friends, we ought to plead with God like Paul did when that thorn began to afflict him. We should pray when we're suffering. But let's not forget that the source behind the thorn is the God of the universe. 
Let's not forget that the God who loves us enough to send his own son to die for us is the same God who will finish what he began in us when he saved us at the first. So he sends his messengers to show us that only Jesus can save. And that's what Paul's conclusion is. Verses 9 and 10. Finally, after a long season of seemingly unanswered prayer, God gives Paul his answer. Now, I don't know if he's spoken to his spirit or that he was taken up into another vision or anything like that, but the answer is very clear. He says, but he said to me, my grace. And he said to me, is in the perfect tense. That means it has ongoing implications. It's true all the time. But he said to me, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for when you are weakest, I am strongest. My strength is made perfect. See, it's, it's like the Lord said to Paul, Paul, I hear your prayer. I, I see your suffering. I understand your suffering. But what you need, my son, is not for me to make your life easier. What you need is not for me to deliver you from your pain and your suffering. What you need is not for me to help you hold on just another day so you can get to tomorrow, to get through to Friday. That's not what you need, Paul. What you need is not to get you to the next spiritual mountaintop. What you need now, what you needed yesterday, and what you will need tomorrow is my sustaining grace. For it is when you feel weakest and when you feel most desperate that my power towards you is strongest. The paradox of the Christian life is that when we are weakest, we are strongest through Christ. That word weakness Paul uses here four times. It can mean physical limitations. It can mean infirmity. But you know what it means at its basic meaning? Weakness. An inability to function as effectively as desired. Anybody feel weakness this morning? Inability to function as effectively as desired. It means to feel one's inadequacy, to feel one's sense of helplessness. Paul Thorn revealed to himself, I am inadequate. I am weak. And so Jesus comes along in his grace, praise God, and he gives him an answer to his prayer with a revelation that was more profound than what he heard in paradise. And Paul comes to realize that God actually wants to force this thorn to save him in the areas where he needs to be saved. He wants to go to his areas of greatest weakness and let those be a place where Jesus comes in and transforms Paul. Friends, the reason Jesus had to be sacrificed on a stake, on a cross, and he had thorns driven into his skull was so that, or one of the reasons, was so that our suffering would be made sense of. God has a purpose in your suffering. He doesn't waste our suffering. 
And he doesn't always save us from our suffering, but because of Christ, he always saves us through it. Always, always. And so Paul, seeing this, was able to stop praying for the thorns removal. He was actually able to rejoice, and he comes to this happy conclusion in verse 9b. Therefore, I will boast now all the more gladly of my strengths. No, my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, friends, that mountaintop experience brought Paul into the presence of Christ for a limited time. But his thorn, this thorn, brought the presence of Christ to Paul forever, permanently. That's what spiritual experiences do. Praise God for them. But it's the thorn that brings the presence of Jesus to us. So that word means to rest upon. That means tabernacle, be with, make home with, to us. Says commentator uh, Paul Barnett so aptly puts it. He said, God brought the elated Paul down to earth and pinned him there with a thorn. But the thorn also kept Paul pinned to the Lord. Now, the greatest evidence of grace in your and my life is not a smooth sailing life. God's grace is not most powerfully present in those sweet seasons in our relationship with Jesus. It's not in financial prosperity. It's not in a successful career. It's not in a quiet home. It's not in perfect children. No, God's greatest grace is shown in momentary glimpses of our weakness and in prolonged seasons of suffering so that we would stop and look up and see that Jesus is enough. I want to close by... I started by talking about George Patton, but I'm going to close by talking about another Patton, a man by the name of John S. Patton. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, John Piper, if you listen to John Piper, mentioned, has mentioned him often in his uh, teachings or sermons on missions. But John Patton was a 19th century uh, Scottish minister or missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Today is known as Vanuatu. But, but John Patton was among the first to arrive uh, to the island with the gospel message. And after his wife and, and he arrived there, and the year was 1858 on the island of Tana, uh, they faced so much opposition right away, immediately, from the natives, who were cannibals, by the way. The first missionaries that arrived there a year or two before were actually killed and eaten within minutes of their arrival. So John and his wife, by, by the urgent desire to proclaim Christ to these natives, arrived. And for the next four years, John suffered big time. The next year, his wife died, and his son, excuse me, his wife was diagnosed with mental health, and his son Peter, a five-year-old, died. And one evening, he, was, uh, he recounts in his autobiography him running from angry native islanders who had gotten their hands on muskets, guns. 
And he recounts this moment uh, that he was hiding from them. And he experiences 2 Corinthians 12 in a fresh way. He says this, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet, I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone and yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, he thinks back over that night, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And then he turns as if to say to us, if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Today, 85% of Vanuatu claims to know Christ because men like John S. Patton knew the value of a thorn. And though few of us may be called to evangelize cannibals, all of us have thorns that God desires to use to save us and maybe to save someone else. Let John's experience and Paul's experience be an encouragement to you. By grace, don't begrudge the lonesome nights and the unanswered prayers and the weak moments. The thorn just may be a means that God uses to cause us to feel our Savior's spiritual presence and to enjoy his consoling fellowship and to show us that when we are weakest, we are strongest in him. Thank you.